0: Number three of London, Ancient and Modern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter one London from the Sanitary Point of View. Part three The London Death Rate. Improved condition of modern London. What is the outlook? Annual Death Rate. The Loose End of Our Sanitation. The London Death Rate the present writers on london like their predecessors are loud in its praises and blind to its defects and they point to a figure which is called the death rate and ask us to accept it as evidence that the state of public health in london is as good as can be it is quite true that the death rate of london is low and that it is not much in excess of the country at large and is very much below that of some of the big towns Scattered throughout the kingdom nevertheless before we accept this figure and rest contented with it we must take several facts into consideration one the london of the registrar-general is very extensive and no small part of it is rural or semi-rural in character many of the dwellers in lewisham wandsworth fulham hampstead hackney greenwich camberwell and woolwich can hardly be looked upon as dwellers in a city and it must be remembered that the death-rates in these districts, which contain only from forty to eight persons to an acre, tend very materially to reduce the death-rate of the whole town. 2. London is very largely a city of wealthy and well-to-do people, most of whom must be looked upon as sojourners rather than dwellers in the city. Among such as these who can command every luxury and necessary of life including change of air, death rates ought to be low. It is manifestly unfair to contrast the death rate of St. George's Hanover Square or Kensington with the death rate of a town packed with the wage-earning class. 3. The mobility of the London population is so great that it must vitiate any statistics bearing on the health of the inhabitants, londoners are a mixture of races recruited from every clime from china to peru they are as the phrase goes here to-day and gone to-morrow and probably no one fact quickens their departure more than ill-health i am told by the proprietor of kelly's post-office directory that the annual correction of addresses amounts to about ten per cent of the whole so that the London population shifts on an average completely every ten years, even among classes who have far more stability than the laboring classes. It is also well to point out that these changes in the directory do not represent all the changes, because in trade it is common for new individuals to trade under an old and established name i find on comparing the directories of eighteen eighty and eighteen eighty nine that in my own street of ninety-six houses there have been eighty-seven changes of names and that ninety-six houses are now credited with the addresses of a hundred and forty individuals whereas in eighteen eighty the individuals numbered a hundred and twenty still more important as vitiating the value of the death rate is the abnormal age distribution in london in london and especially in the central portions of it there is a great deficiency of young children and old people among whom the death rate is always highest the population of london is largely composed of selected adults imported from the country among whom the death rate ought to be low Five the continued low death rate of London is very largely accounted for by the diminishing birth rate. Thus, the birth rate for the ten years of 1877 to 86 averaged 34.4, and the death rate 21.2, while for the year 1887 the birth rate was 31.6 and the death rate 19.5. This is a diminution of 2.8 per thousand of population in the birth rate. This, in a population of 4,250,000, means a deficit of 11,900 children, and, as out of every 1,000 children born in London in 1887, 158 died before they were one year old, i.e. 13 per thousand more than in England as a whole, and 66 per thousand more than in the county of Dorsetshire, it is evident that this diminution of the birth rate entails a deficit of 1,940 in the total deaths occurring in London in the year. It is clear from this that in taking account of diminishing death rate we have to take into consideration the diminishing birth rate also these considerations make it very doubtful whether the death rate of london is of much value as indicating the amount of disease in the city even if we accept it we must not draw any hasty conclusion that the disease rate bears any definite proportion to the death rate there may be much disease with comparatively few deaths as was the case with the scarlet fever epidemic of last year and there can be no doubt that the improvement and extension of medical knowledge has very largely diminished the death-rate of those who are sick further an enormous proportion of those who fall ill in london return to the country to die a fact which must throw considerable doubt on the healthiness i.e., a real vigorous and robust condition which is the true meaning of health of the population, is the amount of sickness as evidenced by the ever-increasing work which is thrown upon the hospitals. According to a table which was published last June in the hospital, it appears that in 1887 there were treated in the London hospitals 79,261 inpatients and 1,180,251 out-patients, or a total of one million two hundred and fifty nine thousand five hundred and twelve persons excluding those who received relief in the hospitals belonging to the asylums board and these were very numerous owing to the epidemic of scarlet fever the workhouse infirmaries the lunatic asylums and idiot asylums thus it appears that in a city whose death-rate was very low more than twenty-five per cent of the population had recourse to the hospitals for relief we must therefore conclude that the death-rate and the disease-rate bear no fixed ratio to each other especially when we consider that between two thousand and three thousand medical men found sufficient work among the population to furnish them with an income if deaths be few in london it is clear that second-rate health is by no means exceptional improved condition of modern london although we have to make many allowances and take many things into consideration before we can estimate the true value of the london death-rate it is of course undeniable that an enormous improvement in the health of the city has taken place since the beginning of the present century to what is this due the chief cause is the increase of knowledge as to the modes in which diseases are spread our knowledge of the mode in which smallpox scarlet fever cholera and typhoid are disseminated has led to the establishment of fever hospitals and to the improvement of the water supply and the inspection of dairies It is not only that the knowledge of doctors has increased, but what is more important, this knowledge has spread to the public, and, as self-preservation is the first law of nature, the public has assisted in protecting itself. The practice of vaccination and the dealing with epidemics by the method of isolation have also materially assisted in diminishing the death rate. Another very important point is the disappearance of malaria drainage the filling up of low-lying places and extensive building operations have banished malaria from our midst and this be it remembered was not only a cause of death in itself but probably tended to make other diseases more deadly it is conceivable that the impregnation of the soil by coal gas may have helped to stop the growth of noxious microbes which make the soil their habitat again our system of sewers which has carried filth away from the dwellings has probably assisted in improving the public health that sewers have done and are doing much harm as well as good is undoubted but it is probable that the balance is so far in their favor for the present typhus fever has disappeared and this is probably due to two causes first the prompt separation of the sick from the healthy and secondly to the fact that we have had no scarcity for some years typhus is due to overcrowding and want i have drawn up a scheme which shows by a curve the average price of wheat from the year eighteen hundred to eighteen eighty six from this it appears that the staple article of food has broadly speaking and with some considerable fluctuation fallen steadily in price from eighteen twelve to the present time when it is at its minimum not only wheat but all articles of food and clothing and also fuel have of late years been getting steadily cheaper potatoes and other vegetables are in common use among the masses and thus we have kept away famine diseases and also that taint of scurvy which was undoubtedly a great cause of ill health in the middle ages a most important fact has been the removal of the intake of the water companies to a part of the river containing less sewage than that between the bridges it is not enough to be able to rejoice in a small death rate we ought to be able to look ahead and feel that to the best of our knowledge there is no probability of the return of a high one and that our sanitary arrangements having been set a-going will continue propria motu we have to remember that diseases disappear or become unimportant and that others become prominent in our own day we have seen the rise in importance of diphtheria and enteric fever and just at present we seem to have lost sight of typhus, for a long time the most important of the febrile diseases. Leprosy, which was at one time common in London, has practically disappeared. Plague, sweating sickness and malarial fever have also gone. Whooping cough was not recognized till the end of the 16th century and could not, therefore, have been as common as it is now. In like manner, scarlet fever was not distinguished from measles until the 17th century, and from that fact we may infer that there could have been no epidemics of it, although we must remember that in the great crowd of fevers it must have been hard to distinguish individuals. The fact that diseases wax and wane must be borne in mind, and should prevent us from indulging in a feeling of false security." WHAT IS THE OUTLOOK? Judged by our present standard of knowledge, have we a right to hope that London is likely to remain free from epidemics? There are certain facts which make me seriously doubt the permanence of the present state of health in London. The first of these is the fact that some of our hygienic measures have tended to produce overcrowding of houses, which is infinitely the greatest of all sanitary evils. Formerly, the sanitary arrangements of houses were such that without some garden or back-premises they would have been uninhabitable, and a reference to Agus's map, or Norden's map, or Newcourt's map, will show that in old London a large proportion of the houses had gardens or back-premises large enough to be shown on a map these maps also show that in charles the second's time just before the plague the overcrowding of houses in london was much more marked than in the days of elizabeth when every drop of water and all the fuel used had to be carried to the upper stories by hand there were practical inconveniences attending upon very high houses which prevented them from being built to any great extent now all is changed our system of sewage has made it possible to build houses with no curtilage whatever and with no outlet but a hole and the possession of a high pressure of water the result of steam power and the modern system of gas has made it possible to have houses of any height without any great inconvenience to the occupants five hundred rooms a passenger and luggage lifts to every floor one thousand electric lights hot and cold water laid on to every room bathrooms on every floor is the kind of advertisement put forward by an eight-storied hotel without an inch of cartilage, without steam power without water under pressure and without water carried sewage such yankee monstrosities were not possible whereas nowadays the loftier the hotel so much the greater is the profit because extra stories do not increase the ground rent on the other hand the fact that houses can be and are allowed to be built without curtilage has given an altogether fictitious value to land the price of which varies in this country according to situation from about two hundred thousand pounds to ten pounds per acre it is not surprising that the bias of landlords and builders is very much in favor of our present system of sanitation sanitary authorities are also in favor of it because having borrowed enormous sums of money which have to be paid out of the rates they are naturally quite regardless of hygiene if they can increase the rateable value of the district and so make the burden of rate collection lighter black care in the form of rates sits behind the councillor Everywhere throughout the metropolitan area, houses are being pulled down and replaced by others twice as high. Extra stories are being added to old houses, and backyards and gardens are fetching enormous prices for building purposes, so that the buildings in the centre of London have doubled their height and have lost all their curtilage huge thoroughfares have been driven through london in all directions but as the ultimate increase in the height of the buildings has been proportionately greater than the increase in the width of the street locomotion has become more difficult our traffic has become more in need of police regulations and it has become an acknowledged rule in the city that if you want to keep an appointment it is dangerous to take a cab because one can thread one's way with more certainty on foot and yet the overcrowding of london does not yet appear in official documents thus the city of london on an area of six hundred and sixty-eight acres in eighteen seventy one had nine thousand four hundred and fifteen inhabited houses and three thousand two hundred and twenty-two uninhabited and a population just short of seventy-six thousand Whereas in 1881 the inhabited houses had fallen to 6,562, the uninhabited had risen to 4,770, and the population had fallen to 51,439. Some historian of the future may draw the conclusion that the decay of London set in acutely about the year 1871, unless he should perchance discover that within the same period the rateable value had risen from £2,500,000 to £3,500,000 that the day population had risen from 170,000 to 260,000, and that the number of persons entering the city daily for business had risen from 657,000 to 739,000. This population is one mainly of adult males, and since, if they get ill in the city, they don't die in it, the death rate keeps down and we like to think it is a wholesome place for a young man to work in the fifty thousand people who have to live night and day in this square mile of ground have not a very cheerful time in this wealthy city where nature has been most effectually obliterated by the brute force of the almighty dollar What chance have they of any fresh air with a radius of houses extending to five miles all around them? At one time the Thames served as a recreation ground, but that was in the days before the tide rolled in, charged with the excrements of four million people, and when it was possible to fish and boat, and perhaps catch a salmon, without the danger of being sunk by some headlong steam-tug until a few years ago there was a little green spot called draper's gardens but now draper's gardens is occupied by throckmorton avenue where dwell three hundred and twenty-two different firms of stockbrokers and others and the nearest recreation ground is st james park three miles off i have lately seen a young man aged twenty-one with signs of incipient consumption He is a fine young fellow, and three years ago entered one of the large city warehouses connected with the drapery trade in the center of the city. At first he was employed mainly in the basement, where gas was burning all day. During times of extra pressure he often worked from eight in the morning to past midnight, and when he retired to rest he had to share a bedroom with other men, the windows being shut. "'I believe this is no uncommon case, and I commend it most heartily to the attention of the sweating committee. Occasionally, on a Saturday afternoon, he got a game of football, his very slender resources being severely taxed to pay the railway fare to the spot where the games are contested. What has occurred in the city has occurred elsewhere in London.' i need only say that the crowding of houses means loss of liberty and increases competition that competition is the cause of sweating and other miseries having wilfully produced these evils i for one do not believe that they are to be removed even by the best-intentioned efforts of city missionaries nor by young men's christian associations nor even by music-halls although tea be the beverage and hymn-tunes the melodies we have to bear in mind the fact that all writers on sanitary matters are agreed that of all dangers to health overcrowding is the greatest and that the death-rate rises in proportion to the density of population when therefore we allow building to go practically unchecked and move the poor out of two-story dwellings into six-story barracks we must remember the possible drawbacks of such a system The death-rate of Paris is higher than that of London, it was nearly 26 per thousand in 1881, but the density of population in Paris is twice that of London, being 117 to the acre, as against 50 in London. Some parts of Paris are very much more crowded than any parts of London, and no parts of it have a density of population so slight as fulham hampstead wandsworth woolwich or lewisham the effect of overcrowding on death rate is seen very markedly in the city of new york which has a population of one million three hundred and thirty seven thousand which has an almost unlimited water supply and the sewage of which is discharged directly into the sea according to the writer in the encyclopedia britannica there is an excessive crowding of the inhabitants into tenement houses and the houses are to a great extent without back entrances as a consequence the death rate was twenty six point forty seven in eighteen eighty thirty one point o eight in eighteen eighty one and twenty nine point six four in eighteen eighty two In overcrowded places, the danger is great when contagious disease makes its appearance. The spread of such diseases as typhus, measles, and whooping cough is very much favoured by overcrowding. I have prepared a table taken from the Registrar-General's decennial abstract, which shows this fact very clearly with regard to London. I have arranged the various registration districts of London according to the density of population, and in another column I have given the death rate per 100,000 from whooping cough and measles, two diseases which are rarely treated in hospitals, and which are very prone to follow each other in epidemics, so that when we have not measles with us, we have whooping cough, and vice versa. Reader's note here follows a very extensive table the above figures show the effects of overcrowding on the mortality from two important diseases very conclusively and it is interesting to note how very far the mortality from these two diseases in dorsetshire is below that of even the best parts of london Among other diseases which are very common in London are the tubercular and respiratory diseases. Thus, the mortality from scrofula, tabies mesenterica, phthisis, and hydrocephalus in London during the ten years 1871 to 80 was collectively 349 per 100,000, no correction being made for abnormal age distribution as against 224 in Dorsetshire, and the death rate from respiratory disease was 460, as against 315 in Dorsetshire. During the 15 years, 1872 to 1886, I find that 34,254 inpatients have been treated in University College Hospital, of these three thousand seven hundred and ninety eight were cases of respiratory diseases and two thousand four hundred and fifty three were cases of diseases of bones and joints a very large proportion of which according to recent investigations are tubercular thus we have six thousand two hundred and fifty one cases of disease or more than 18% of the whole, in which tubercle plays an important part. There were also 459 cases of enteric fever, 276 cases of diphtheria, and 1020 cases of rheumatic fever. These, taken together, amount to 1,755, or about 5% of the whole, rheumatic fever is one of the common diseases of london which attacks young adults and very often cripples them for life it is a disease of great importance and appears from the last report of the registrar-general to have been on the increase since eighteen fifty eight besides the greater liability to premature death which is caused by overcrowding there are other drawbacks which are scarcely less important one of these with which we are well acquainted in london is an increase in the dirtiness and smokiness of the air which is mainly due to private fireplaces when huge piles of offices are run up in the city or elsewhere we like to imagine that because most of them are tenantless at night they cause no inconvenience forgetting that each office has its fireplace which helps to foul the air and that each office supplies its quota of sewage to help to foul the river the state of the air in london is such that the most beautiful of all arts gardening has become impractical from the fact that comparatively few flowers or shrubs will flourish this absence of green plants entails a great loss of nascent oxygen or ozone which gives to air its peculiar quality of freshness it is hardly conceivable that a high level of health can be maintained in a spot where vegetable life languishes animal life and vegetable life being complementary to each other the overcrowding in london has of late years been mitigated by the conversion of old graveyards into gardens thanks to the society over which the earl of meath so ably presides if cremation as a means of disposing of the dead should become general and spacious cemeteries be replaced by furnaces It is clear that these spaces bequeathed us by the dead will not be available for lungs in the London of the future, and that cremation, unless it be counteracted by suitable legislation, is certain to intensify our state of overcrowding. The moral side of overcrowding must not be forgotten, but it is not necessary to dwell upon it as the Whitechapel horrors are still fresh in the memory, and the difficulty of detecting crime in a labyrinth of hiding places has been demonstrated. The first aim of a sanitary authority should be to prevent overcrowding, and its most important duty is to control building operations, a duty which is never performed because buildings help to pay the rates. THE LOOSE END OF OUR SANITATION another reason why it is not possible to regard the present sanitary condition of london with much complacency arises from the fact that our sanitarians have failed to make both ends meet but have left a terrible loose end to their measures which is a constant menace and an increasing danger this loose end consists of a daily allowance of 150 million gallons of sewage which our new councillors have inherited from the late board, and which is the result of probably the greatest sanitary blunder ever committed in the history of the world. The proper destination of organic refuse is the soil. Nobody doubts this why therefore in a moment of weakness did we construct six millions worth of machinery to throw it in the water the great glory of london time out of mind has been the thames but now certainly our glory has departed having adopted a method of sanitation which is based on an utterly wrong principle the condition of the thames must get progressively worse as long as that method is pursued some persons talk of a sewage farm as a remedy but at least fifty thousand acres of land would be necessary and to say the least of it that is not a cheerful outlook for the ratepayer in these days of agricultural depression at present we are spending fifty thousand pounds a year on chemical abominations to mix with the other abominations but it is very hard to see how that can improve matters the chemicals will certainly not help the fishing industry and if added in sufficient quantity they must absolutely destroy the very small manurial value possessed by the sewage or its sludge my own belief is that the sewage problem in its present form is insoluble to deal with and filter slop water as is done in paris is comparatively easy but here in london the problem is of a wholly different kind and my firm conviction is that our present system of water carriage must lead us deeper and deeper into the mire until the problem of what to do with our sewage is settled clearly we ought to do our best to stop the growth of the evil our present system of sewers ought to be closed as far as permission to connect fresh houses is concerned as it is the new council like the old board will have an uncertain quantity of sewage to deal with for old houses are being everywhere pulled down and houses of greatly increased capacity erected and this of course means a proportionate increase in the sewage to be disposed of In the city there are but 50,000 inhabitants in the official sense, but there are by this time fully 300,000 daily workers and over 700,000 daily visitors to the city, so that, in spite of an official decrease in population, the increase of sewage from that particular spot must be enormous." The same class of facts applies to other districts in the metropolis, so that the evil at the outfall is not only not improving, but is increasing daily. It seems to me quite impossible to make any arrangement for adequately dealing with the sewage of a district, unless you are able to say beforehand what is the maximum quantity which will have to be dealt with there being no adequate control of building in london and no relation between the cubic contents of a building and the area it occupies witness queen anne's mansions the huge pile with which we are threatened at knightsbridge and the equally large pile projected in the strand which is to be 135 feet high, according to the newspapers. It is evident that the volume of sewage to be dealt with may be doubled or trebled without any increase of the area drained by the sewers. Under such conditions as these, the sewage problem may well be insoluble. The first and main duty of any sanitary authority should be to exercise a wise control over building. If every house were compelled in the future to have a curtilage bearing a definite proportion to the cubic contents, there would be an end of these towers of Babel, which shut out from us the light and air of heaven. The price of building land would fall. It would be possible to make some calculations as to sewage, and the excessive overcrowding of a city would be prevented without such a regulation great sewage schemes must in the end make the sanitary condition of a city worse rather than better what to do with our sewage is a very difficult problem an insoluble problem i believe on the present lines At present, the Metropolitan Board is shipping some of the solid matter to be dropped into the sea at the mouth of the Thames. When the Thames Conservancy see this fine ship, built in the eclipse and rigged with curses dark, bound on its mission of blocking the Port of London, what can they think? They think it worthwhile, apparently, to have a man fined for throwing a basket of rubbish over one of the bridges.' again the house of commons passed a stringent act to prevent the pollution of rivers but when a year or so since their own sewage arrangements were at fault they merely constructed an ingenious apparatus to thoroughly suck the sewage out of their own premises and pass it on more effectually than before to pollute the river on whose bank their stately palace stands what is the good of legislation without example if the house of commons at some sacrifice more fancied than real of personal convenience had adopted measures in accordance with the spirit of their legislation i believe we should have been within a measurable distance of seeing the thames once more meriting the name of silvery A good example is better than any amount of legislation and a good example set in high places is much needed in this matter to which there is undoubtedly a moral side how to alter the present arrangements in london now the houses have been almost uniformly deprived of their curtilage is very difficult under some circumstances returning were as tedious as to go o'er but i am myself inclined to think that the best solution of London's sewage difficulty lies in the direction of cremation certainly in the direction of decentralisation i believe also that at the outskirts much might be accomplished by an equitable adjustment of sanitary rates and by encouraging householders to do for themselves what no public authority can do so satisfactorily for them but as i have dealt with this subject very fully in a paper on the shortcomings of modern sanitary methods i shall say no more at present london gets more than half its water from the thames and this is another reason why the sanitary outlook is not satisfactory the system of water carried sewage is now almost universal the sewage ultimately taking its course along the track of the watershed wherever water carried sewage is in vogue the natural water courses must get fouled and the fouling will be in proportion to population The sewage may be deprived of its coarser ingredients by mechanical or chemical means, but it is not possible to believe that any of the methods of treating sewage at present in use render the effluent wholesome enough to drink without danger. The increase of population in the Valley of the Thames is therefore a distinct danger to London." The following table gives the population for 1871 and 1881 of some registration districts situated in the Thames Valley. Reader's Note Here follows a table. End Note i am well aware that some of the districts in the above list are below the intake of the water companies but the figures serve to show how rapid is the increase of population in the valley of the thames which is one of the most popular districts in the whole country this concentration of people along the banks of the river must have the effect of lessening the purity of the water which we drink thus it is evident that what i have called the loose end of our sanitation is a growing expense and a growing danger hygiene to be a permanent benefit should move along natural lines and organic refuse ought to be committed to the soil as quickly as possible when it would cease to be a danger and would prove a source of profit if the evil effects of free trade are to be counteracted it will be by returning the refuse of our towns free of cost to the impoverished agriculturist if we in england go on as we are going and if our brethren in the colonies follow our example as they are doing i believe our race must become extinct and it will be a Chinaman rather than a New Zealander who will sit in contemplation on the ruins of London Bridge. End of number three.